I invite you to pray with me this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity to be together in your house with your people. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word. We pray that as we do that, Lord, you would find us amenable to, responsive to, excited about the truths that we see there. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, this morning, at verses 53 to 65, so you might take a couple of minutes to find that. Um, We're not quite uh, there, we're not quite ready to read it yet, but nonetheless, that is where we will be camping out uh, this morning for a while. When I was in uh, junior high school, they call it middle school these days, but when I was in junior high school, uh, I had two friends, I was in the seventh grade, two friends named Doug. Doug and Doug. Dougie Cash, Dougie Gallup. I don't know where they are now. I suspect one of them at least is in prison, but uh, it's not clear exactly where they are these days. I lived in a city in the Northeast in Holyoke, called Holyoke, Massachusetts. It used to be called the paper capital of the world. Can you imagine? What is even paper these days? I don't know. But even in that day and time, the paper industry was beginning to scale down. And so the, the, the factory complex where they had manufactured all this paper was gradually getting turned into a series of abandoned factories. There were a few operating, but most of them had been abandoned. So one day, one of the Dugs, I do not remember who, had this really bright idea that we, the seventh graders, should go down to this factory complex and climb up on the roofs to see what we could see. So we did. We went down, we got to the fire escape ladder, up we went to the top of these multi-story, I think they were three or four stories high, these factory roofs, and we got up there. And of course, when you get up there, what there is to see is pretty much nothing. But we wandered around, we went from roof to roof to roof, their buildings were pretty close. Yes, we did leap over the gap between the roofs to get to the next one, because we were, yes, young and stupid. And one of the guys named Doug said, hey, let's jump. And so we did. Um, so the answer to the age-old question, well, it, you know, if, if your friend said, would you jump off a bridge, would you? The answer was yes, I would, and I did. So we're up there, and then traveling from rooftop to rooftop, and suddenly there's this big flashlight illuminating the rooftop landscape. And we hear this voice gently calling to us, Halt! (laughs) So we, you know, halted. And it turns out it was, yes, a local police officer who was really thrilled that he had had to climb up to the top of these roofs to chase down these kids who had been reported up on top of the roofs by one of those factories that was still operating. So he said, come here. So we, you know, went there. Come down with me. So we went down with him. Get in the car. So we got in the car, sitting in the back. Now he knew right away he did not have hardened criminals in the back of his car because we said things like, hey, can you turn on the lights? (laughs) No, shut up. Okay. So then we got to the police station. Now all of us by now were, you know, on the edge of trepidation. And then the trepidation ramped up when we got inside because the thing they said to us that shook us to the very marrow of our existence was, we're going to call your parents. I said, please, don't call my parents. I'll take the death penalty instead. (laughs) But no, they called my parents. Um, I I, I think it's interesting that when we're caught in situations of... uh, 
of, uh, you know, guilt, <laughs> how we respond and, and how we plead in those moments. And we're at a, an interesting place in our journey through the Gospel of Mark today as we approach Holy, Holy Week because we are going to watch a series of trials unfold. And the trials are of Jesus during, the, during this Holy Week expedition. So we're going to listen to the accusations and we're going to hear how Jesus pleads when he's faced with an accusation. And we're going to hear him plead both not guilty and guilty. And he's going to plead guilty to the one thing that's going to put him on that cross and make the way for our salvation. Because you see, Jesus pleads guilty so that you and I can have a pardon. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 53 to 65. They, that is the soldiers from the temple, the temple guards that had arrested Jesus, they took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There Peter sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah? The Son of the Blessed One, verse 62, two words that ring throughout history, I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him, They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. The first thing we need to understand is the nature of this particular trial. This is not American jurisprudence in action. It's not like trials in the United States. I had a 1964 Chevy Impala. I really liked that car. It's back in the day when cars were really cars, and not just collections of plastic waiting to hit a bump in the road. And so one day I had this car parked outside uh, a relative's home. And while I was in the relative's home, and then it came out later on at night, my Chevy Impala had been stolen. I was not happy. They eventually recovered the car. And uh, they recovered the kids that they thought had stolen the car, walking away from it after they had kind of driven it into a ditch. And they had a trial for these young people. And they called me to testify at the trial. And they said, how do you know that this car was your car? Now I'm thinking, this is the stupidest question I've ever heard anybody ask at any time. I know it's my car. It's my car. How would I not know it's my car? It's my car. My screwdriver was in the, it was in the, was in the trunk with my toolbox. And so the defense attorney, who I still hate, <laughs> not really, I just think poorly of him in a hateful kind of way. Anyway, he held up one of the screwdrivers and said, is this your screwdriver? I said, yes. He said, how do you know? 
I said, well, it's got a yellow and a black handle. It's, it's my screwdriver. And he said, don't you think that they manufactured thousands of screwdrivers with yellow and black handles? How do you know for sure this is your screwdriver? And I looked at him and I said, I guess I, guess I, I, guess I really don't know. That's our kind of jurisprudence system. And sometimes we are frustrated, I think, by the length and the process and the delays and the legal maneuvering that happens in our jurisprudence system. Um, But all of these things are designed to protect the accused and to reinforce the state's responsibility to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Extraordinary measures to protect the rights of the accused in search of justice. And that, folks, is not the jurisprudence system that was in place in Jesus' day and time. All of our system is in stark contrast to Jesus' trial here. This trial was not to prove or disprove guilt. Disproving guilt wasn't even on the radar. This trial was a pretext for killing Jesus. Matthew chapter 26, verse 59, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. In the Gospel of Mark chapter 14, which we looked at just a, you know, a couple, three years ago, uh, Gospel of Mark chapter 14, verse 1, now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. Do you see the difference? That was a search for uh, made-up reasons to kill Jesus in contrast to the kind of you know, legal system that, uh, that we are used to. And even though, even though that Jesus knows that this whole thing, this whole trial about which we read is a pretext to find him guilty so that they can kill him, he still uses it. He still manages to use it to communicate the, a foundational thing. So how does Jesus plead to the charges brought against him? Well, there's kind of two sets of charges. And in verses 57 through 59, they have these ridiculously misinterpreted reports about Jesus' comments about the temple. Now, this flows from an episode in the Gospel of John, chapter 2. The disciples are looking at the magnificence of of Herod's temple, and they say, wow, this thing is amazing. And Jesus says, well, this is going to come at any time when this is going to come down. But the temple that I am is going to be rebuilt in three days. And he was making an allusion to his own death, burial, and resurrection, which they didn't get. And some of these people used those comments to twist them to kind of accuse Jesus of wanting to tear the temple down. So when he hears these accusations, what does Jesus do? He keeps quiet. Because he knows the charges are false, and he's innocent, but he also knows that they're not interested in the truth anyway. They've manufactured a situation to try and convict and execute Jesus. In our country, we have the Bill of Rights. We have protection against unlawful searches and seizures. We have due process. We have trials by juries of our peers. None of those things were true for Jesus. Again, this whole trial here is a pretext to find a reason to kill him. Pastor Laura and I were living in the New England when the Boston Marathon, which has been canceled this year, or postponed, 
Um, but on April 15th in 2013, there was a bombing at the Boston Marathon. We were on our way to Westfield, which is more in the western part of the state, as the name would imply, um, to visit a college for my stepson, Matthew. And uh, we're coming back from that, and I get a cell phone call from my son saying, are you guys okay? And we had no idea, because we hadn't heard that the Boston Marathon had been bombed. The two brothers had put together this plan, these little crock pot bombs, these little pressure cooker bombs, and uh, killed some people and wounded a lot more. And in the subsequent days, they were hunting for these guys. You've never seen a lockdown until you've seen the lockdown they did to try to find these people who had performed or perpetrated this Boston Marathon bombing. And one of the suspects did not survive, but one did survive. Zokar Zanarov. He was a student at a university in the area. And he, though he had perpetrated this crime, he had obviously done it, he got absolutely every protection that comes from the due process of our system. Jesus gets none of that. He has no due process expectations. So in the face of these false accusations, he just keeps quiet. The witnesses had disagreed because there was nothing to agree about. The witnesses had misquoted and misinterpreted what he said because they weren't interested in the pursuit of truth. They were interested in a pretext to kill Jesus. But, but, there is another accusation in this passage. The chief priest asks him this question about, are you the Messiah? Now this is a loaded question, folks. This is a loaded question. And when Jesus hears this loaded question, knowing that giving a truthful answer is going to be the reason that they're looking for to send him to the cross, when he gives a truthful answer to this question, he says, I am. And this is a clear claim to be God's anointed one. Now, there's background behind this two-word phrase. Back in the day of Moses, back in Exodus chapter 3, Moses, who had been kind of wandering away from his job for a while, he was actually in hiding because he had killed somebody and wouldn't want to get in trouble for that. So he's out, you know, tending his flock, and he sees this bush burning on the hillside, and he sees that the bush is burning, but it doesn't seem to be consumed by the fire, so he goes over to check that out, because, you know, that's unusual, right? If you burn a bush, it usually, like, burns to the ground. So he goes over and he checks it out and he's standing in front of the bush and he goes, oh my gosh, this is a really unusual thing. Uh, Something weird might be happening here. And then he hears the voice of God and says, Moses, take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. So Moses, hearing the voice of God, complies with the shoe off request. And then God proceeds to give to Moses a series of instructions. And he tells Moses, hey, Moses, got a job for you, buddy. You know all that place that you ran away from and all those people you didn't want to be seen by anymore? Yeah, I want you to go back there and I want you to lead my people from there out to the promised land. And Moses, as you can understand, was a little taken aback by this request. Really, it wasn't a request. It was a command from God to go back to the place he had run away from. And so Moses begins what you and I do sometimes when we we know we have something in front of us that God wants us to do. He stalls. He asks a bunch of questions. Hey, God, what about this? Hey, God, what about that? Hey, God, what about this? 
And Moses, knowing he's going back to the land of Egypt where they had more gods than you can count, he says what he thinks, I think, is going to be a trick question to stump God to get out of this assignment. He says, God, listen, I know you want me to go back. I get that. I completely understand. But listen, when I go back, they're going to want to know which God sent me. I can't just say God sent me because there are so many gods. They're going to know which God sent me. And so God says to him this, Moses, when you go back, you tell them, I am that I am has sent you. I am. And of course, in the Hebrew language, we get the four consonants associated with that, from which we get the word Yahweh, that we just use to describe as one of the Old Testament names of God. But it translates, I am. So do you get it? When they ask Jesus if he's the Messiah, and he says, I am, that is an absolutely clear identification with the person who is going to be sent by God to accomplish this Messiah mission. Now listen. To all of those people who say that Jesus was just some nice guy who taught some pithy things, but whose followers puffed him up to be something he never claimed to be, this passage here, among others in the Bible, makes it crystal clear. Jesus says, under oath, by the way, Matthew chapter 26, the parallel account of this trial, makes it clear that he's under oath. He says, I am. They all knew exactly what he meant. They all knew exactly what he was saying. Underneath the sham of justice in this trial is this expression of the reality of the grace of God in Christ. The great I am is on the scene to deal with our sin, extending the grace of God to us. That's how he pleads. Yep, guilty. I'm the Messiah. So we know how Jesus answered these charges, how he pled, but, but how do we plead? Because like my time with my stupid friends Doug on the top of those rooftops, the reality is we're guilty. I mentioned last week a really popular verse in the book of Romans that we all love to embrace, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, which says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then I gave you a little test. What does the word all mean? And it means? All. All. All of us. Every one of us. A little three-letter word captures everybody. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There were five kids gathered in a garage in a circle, and mom looked in on this circle of these little five or six-year-old kids and saw that they were gathered around five baby skunks. So she didn't know what to do. So finally she yells, run! And each kid picked up a skunk and ran. (laughs) You and I, we always have the skunk of sin with us. Jesus never did. When Jesus was tempted, he said no to sin. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And because Jesus is the Messiah and takes on our guilt for us, we can be declared not guilty. 
We plead guilty, but we are declared not guilty. I read about this in the history books. I wasn't familiar with it at the time. But back on September 8, 1974, President Ford did something no other president had ever done. He pardoned a previous president, declared him not guilty. Now, everybody knew he was guilty. Everybody knew if there had been a trial or whatever, it would have been a a, a years-long, multiply-layered mess. Everybody knew he was guilty, but the president had the authority to declare him pardoned. And and, and what, what God does for you and me goes way beyond that. We're not like free on a technicality. We are in a position where, in Christ, our stuff is wiped out. It's as if, imagine this, as if it never happened, you and I. We are guilty but set free because someone stepped in on our behalf and took the penalty of our sin. And, you know, in this moment of this coronavirus craziness, I think we need to realize that the multiply faceted benefit that flows, benefits that flow from a relationship with Christ, they are anchored in this central reality that Jesus went to the cross to pay for our sin. That you and I have been declared not guilty, even though we are guilty, if we have a relationship with Jesus. And we can lean into words like the ones I mentioned before that in this world we will have trouble. Hello. But Jesus says, take heart, I've overcome the world. So, this morning, let's be anchored to this truth, shall we? Jesus says, I am. He is the Messiah. As we watch over the next weeks this journey toward the cross, we realize that he's doing that for you and for me. And because he takes our guilt, we can be declared not guilty. And everything else, all those promises that flow from the reality of the person of who God is, all of those promises that are packed into the scriptures flow from this one moment when the reality of forgiveness comes for you and for me. Let's pray together.